0: We are on the road to Easter, Resurrection Sunday. And, you know, we have it easier uh, than the initial 12 followers of Jesus and the apostles uh, because they didn't know resurrection was coming. And we do. And we thank God for the forerunner Jesus who is the pattern for you and I. That if you're facing a Gethsemane or a crucifixion, we serve a God of the resurrection. Amen? And you know the thing about the resurrection it's not just a celebration of life it's a celebration of overcoming life. What it means is is that God in Christ has the life to overcome what sin and Satan and lawlessness has created on the earth and in our life. That being said I want to read from Luke chapter 22 for time gets Uh, Beyond us, we need to jump right in. Luke chapter 22, verse 39. Coming out, he, Jesus, went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him when he came to the place. Everybody say the place. He said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. I want to preach a message today titled, The Road Through Gethsemane. Will you say that with me? The Road Through Gethsemane. And before I do, I'd like to pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We thank you that we are gathered in the name of Jesus, the name above every name. And we ask that you would find our hearts and our minds and our lives open to you, the God of truth, the God of grace. That in your light we would see light, that Holy Spirit you would reveal Jesus, that you would begin to guide our road ahead. We look to you. I yield to you, Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. Life is not just a moment, but it is made up of moments. Life is not just an event, though it is made up of events. Life is not just a destination, though it has an ending destination. Life is a road. Life is a journey. Life is a journey with a destination. Maybe you're not familiar, but one of the core values here at Dwelling Place is maturity journey. That God has invited and called us as followers of Jesus into a journey. And it's a journey that we would mature into all that God has called us to and all that God has made available. Last week, Pastor Craig brought us down the road of the triumphant entry and up to the upper room where Jesus observed the Passover meal with His closest disciples, His 12 chosen apostles. He, after supper, washes His disciples' feet. Jesus establishes the new covenant fulfillment of the Passover meal, what today we call Holy Communion, the cup of the new covenant in His blood that was shed and the bread of His body that was given for all. Jesus then spends time instructing them on the new commandment. He predicts Peter's denial. He teaches on the Father and how the Father has been revealed through him. Through the words that Jesus has said that the Father has given him and the Spirit that empowered and manifest and lived through Jesus revealed the Father. He speaks on the topic of answered prayer the coming of the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the the helper. And he talks about his peace, a peace that is not of this world. And he talks about his joy, a joy that is not of this world. He talks about kingdom fruitfulness and the world's hatred of him and the followers of him. And yet he says, but I have overcome all evil. Then Jesus prays for them. It's... Referred to often by scholars as a high priestly prayer recorded in John 17. And then according to the Matthew in his gospel, they sung a hymn and they left for the Mount of Olives. One of the interesting things that it's very important that we take note is that in all of the gospel accounts, not just the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but also in the gospel of John, the last one of the four gospels written, we find the account of, what we're looking at today, the road through Gethsemane. All of them give an account of it. You know, life is not just about customs, but it is made up of customs. And this brings us back to our main text. If you notice that there in Luke 22, verse 39, it says, coming out, coming out of the upper room, they go to the Mount of Olives. And notice that Dr. Luke puts this phrase in. As he was accustomed. He went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. Now in John's account, John gives us a little more uh, detail. He says, in, as it recorded in John 18, 1, that it was over the brook Kidron where there was a garden. A garden. The garden of Gethsemane. In John 18.10, John says, as a disciple, as an apostle, that Jesus often met there with His disciples. Know the, notice the key words. He was accustomed to going there, and He met there often with His disciples. So Jesus had a custom of going to the garden on the Mount of Olives. I can imagine that Jesus probably enjoyed that place of prayer more than how he started his ministry in the place of prayer. Because he started his ministry coming out of the place of prayer in the desert, in the wilderness. And I could imagine he's so grateful now for a place of prayer, a place to instruct and teach his disciples that's a beautiful garden, a beautiful scenery. And Jesus had a custom of meeting with his disciples there in the garden of Mount of Olives. So here... In Gethsemane, we see that Jesus was accustomed to engaging in prayer there. He was accustomed to engaging in community, spending time with His disciples, His followers there. Jesus was accustomed in this setting of teaching and instructing and participating in what we would refer to as practical discipleship. Now, before we move forward, I want to define for us up front what a custom is. A custom is a habitual practice. The usual way of acting in given circumstances. A practice so long established that it has the force of a law, or the force of a principle. Meaning this, habits form customs, and customs form habits. Jesus here demonstrates for us that there was a current that His life had been swept up in because He had a custom. He had habits. And here as He faces a circumstance, He faces a betrayal. As in the upper room, He made the announcements. He said, one of those who sit amongst me, me, who even dips his bread with me in my cup, will betray me. And yet as he faces this betrayal, as he faces this new circumstance, Jesus already has a current that is sweeping him forward. Why? Because he had customs and the customs created a habit and habits create customs and customs create a current. And so Jesus, in this current, he goes to the place that he's accustomed to, a place of prayer, a place of community, a place of practical discipleship see customs create a current that's why in the definition of custom it says that it's a practice so long established that it has the force of a law it is a custom a habit that begins to take on a force it begins to take on a momentum of its own so the currents of customs become like a undercurrent in our life And the thing about an undercurrent is that you're not consciously, always consistently cognizant about it. You're not always intentionally thinking about it and yet it's there. That's the dangers of when you're in the ocean. If you're not aware, cognizant of an undercurrent that you can be swept up in a current and be moving in a direction that you're not cognizant or aware you're being pulled in. In fact, I would suggest today that if you give me 90 days to observe your customs, I can prophesy what your journey will look like in two years. Because your customs create a current. And your current becomes an undercurrent moving your life in that direction, whether you're cognizant or consciously aware of it moment by moment. And here we see Jesus as the pattern, the heavenly pattern, demonstrating it. You pick up in Mark's account, in Mark 14, verse 48 and 49, that there in the garden, after he has spent time in prayer, Judas, having went to the high priest and has got, A whole group of men, they come out with clubs and swords to arrest Jesus. And Jesus answered and said to them in that moment, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? Watch this, verse 49. I was daily with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But the scriptures must be fulfilled. Jesus says, look. The feast has been going on and I have daily been in the temple teaching. What this means is, is Jesus, not only did He have a custom of prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, not only did He have a custom of meeting with a community of disciples in the Garden, not only did He have a custom of practical discipleship that took place in the Garden, but Jesus also had a custom of gathering with the community of God's people. Jesus had a custom of engaging with God's scripture amongst God's people. The question then begins to face you and I as we look to the life of Jesus as a pattern, as the forerunner, as the heavenly man, as the image of the Father and the will of the Father is, do you and I have a custom of prayer? Do you and I have a place and a custom of prayer, Do you and I have a custom of engaging in practical discipleship, discipleship of talking about and addressing the Word of God and the Scriptures and the promises of God? Do you and I have a custom of engaging God's work amongst God's people? In fact, Dr. Luke in Luke 4 and 16 says, So he, Jesus, came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, watch this, as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And stood up to read. It's interesting because multitudes today don't have the pattern of Jesus in their life. And they use excuses. They use what we'll see in a moment of bias, wrong thinking in their life to form wrong customs in their life. Because a lot of people today say, well, you know, there's so much wrong with local churches. And therefore they use that as an excuse to not engage in God's work among God's people in a local community. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus, who would rebuke the majority of the religious leaders of His day, who led the synagogues and the temple, and yet He still had a custom to be a part of and be in where God was working amongst God's people. It was His custom. Notice there in the Mark text, in Mark 14 and 49, he says, but the Scriptures must be fulfilled. What this gives us insight is that Jesus spent a lot of time in Scripture. He knew Scripture. He knew the promises of Scripture. He knew the prophecies of Scripture. Matthew 26, 24, Matthew records... Jesus saying, The Son of Man indeed goes just as it is written of him. In Matthew 26 and 56, Jesus says, But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Here's the point. When you think about customs, we need to be clear that Jesus had a custom of engaging with God's scriptures. Jesus had a custom of allowing God's scriptures to inform and instruct him of his identity. And his purpose. So many people are not accustomed to allowing God's scripture to inform them regarding their identity. They look to others, they look to culture to try to find the answer of who they are, who they were created to be, what God's intent and intention for them is. But that's not what Jesus modeled. Jesus modeled a custom of going to the Scriptures of God to find from the Scriptures His identity. And not just His identity, but His purpose. So in the life of Jesus, in the texts we're seeing, we see customs of prayer. We see customs of biblical community. We see customs of Scripture engagement and that they were the primary influences in informing His Story. Jesus allowed the story of Scripture to inform and direct His story. What about you? What about me? What about us? See, we are not just living a story. We are not just being told a story. We are also telling ourselves a story. And the question that that you and I should ask this morning is what story are you telling yourself? When it comes to your identity, when it comes to your purpose, when it comes to the direction of your life, what story are you telling yourself? Some of you, maybe you're listening, maybe you're watching. You're telling yourself a story that you're a good person. That you're good enough. That you've not done anything so evil. But does it make you a good person. That you're okay, that you're right with God, your Creator. Others of you, you tell yourself the story that you're an utter failure, and you'll always be a failure. Some of you tell yourself the story that you're a victim. You'll always be a victim. And because you're a victim, you can't succeed because others are more powerful in your life than God's power who created you. Some of you tell yourself the story that I can do no wrong. You tell yourself the story, a story of you never have faults, but you can do no wrong. Some of you tell yourself the story that what I do does not affect who I'm becoming. Some of you tell yourself the story daily that you don't need a Savior, that you're strong enough, you're holy enough, You're wise enough that you can do it on your own. Some of you tell yourself the story that you're never the problem. It's always others, it's always culture, it's always circumstances. Some of you tell yourself the story that you have nothing to learn, that you know it all, seen it all, have done it all. Some of you tell yourself the story that I haven't learned enough, that I'm on a pilgrimage, a journey to learn to learn about God, to learn about His Son, to learn about His Word, His ways, and His will. But what story are you telling yourself this morning? When we think about the story we tell ourselves, we need to deal with the issue of bias and how a bias or biases affect customs in our life. Now, so that we're clear, I want to define bias In this moment, according to dictionary.com, bias is a particular tendency, trend, inclination, feeling, or opinion. Especially one that is preconceived or unreasoned. I find it interesting and I found the definition informing because naturally when I think of the word bias, I don't always see it in a negative light. But when you look at the definition, the definition forms bias as in a negative light. Why? Because anything we hold that is just preconceived and we've not reasoned about it becomes dangerous. Meaning, we have something formed in our life and yet we're not aware of why it's been formed in our life. We have a way of thinking in our life and yet we're not sure why we think that way. That's dangerous. And this is why it comes into play when it comes about customs. Because for some of us, we have customs in our life, we have habits in our life, and yet we don't know why those customs or habits are even in our life. And yet, they provide an undercurrent in our life. See, when biases lead our customs, we will be swept up in a current that is controlling our direction, our tomorrow, and our future. When we have biases in our life that are leading the customs and the habits of our life, then you and I are going to find ourselves being swept up in a story that we don't want to be swept up in. Because biases cause you and I to tell ourselves stories that reinforce the biases we already have. Meaning, when you have a bias, when you have a preconceived notion, when you have a way of thinking that you've not reasoned about, those biases cause you and I to only tell ourselves stories that reinforce the biases. And I want to remind us today that just because it's trendy, just because it feels right, just because it's your opinion, just because you feel inclined to do it, does not make it right, does not make it true, does not make it beneficial for you nor society. See, remember customs are a habitual practice by definition. And customs that reinforce your bias and the unconfirmed stories you tell yourself will move you further from truth, from freedom, from reality, and your Creator. This reminds me of what author David McGraney McRain- calls a narrative bias. A narrative bias is when given the opportunity you prefer to give and receive information in the narrative format that you have. Meaning, you and I prefer tales within the structure you've come to understand as the backbone of what is a good story. And this is why the stories we tell ourselves matters. Because if you and I tell ourselves stories that is not reality, that is not truth found in Christ and in the Word of God, then you and I will begin to have a bias to ignore any stories that contradict the story we tell ourselves and to only look for and look for ways to conform the story we're already telling ourselves. Now when it comes to narrative bias... This is why you and I like different movies. This is why all of us have different likes of genres. Because we all have a bias for the types of stories we like. You have a bias for the types of stories you like. David McRaney he goes on to say that you and I often move on without skepticism if the question of why gets resolved in a pleasing way way meaning when we face something in life and we ask the why question if the why question gets answered in a way that we find pleasing then we don't evaluate the story being told or the stories we tell ourselves and this is dangerous and this can be damning because there is a good type of skepticism that Scripture calls us to. You remember Paul when he talked about the Bereans? He said they were of of more noble character because they went back to Scriptures testing everything that they heard him teach. Meaning, when it comes to biblical formation, you and I need to know why we have the customs we have, why we have the habits we have, and why we tell ourselves the stories we tell ourselves. Because without skepticism, you never evaluate your customs. And without evaluating your customs, you do not know what is dictating the current of your life. And without knowing the current you are in, you are not aware of what destination you'll end up in. So without a healthy type of skepticism, you do not know what story, watch this, or whose story you are living And as much as we're called scripturally to honor our parents, we still ain't called to live our parents' story. And as much as we're called to be friendly, to have friends, we're not called to live our friends' story. That God has a story, and He invites us into His story through Christ. And though we're a part of something bigger than us, there is still a uniqueness of each of us that God has for us in His story. And I had this wonder this week. Wonder if there is a way to determine the way that removes you from being in the way. Meaning if we're all vulnerable to biases, if we're all vulnerable to allowing ourselves to tell ourselves the wrong story or to allow others to tell wrong stories about our identity or our purpose, wonder if there is a way to determine the way That removes you from being in the way. Let me say it this way Wonder if there is a way to determine what is pleasing that removes your bias from determining what is pleasing. Because when you got a wrong bias, what feels pleasing to you probably isn't pleasing to your Creator. Well, I want to tell you that we don't have to wonder no longer. Because there is a place called Gethsemane that is created for that. There's a place called Gethsemane. See, Gethsemane means an oil press. The word Gethsemane is an oil press. It's the Mount of Olives. And there on the Mount of Olives, it's filled with olive trees. And there in the garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, it means an oil Now when you think about olive oil, it's amazing because olive oil has great value. And with anything that has great value, wicked wicked people have sought to exploit it. And so for decades, corruption has been involved in the olive oil process. And marketing and companies have sold things labeled as virgin olive oil that hasn't been virgin olive oil because anything where money's involved there is the vulnerability of those that have corrupt hearts to try to come in and right manipulate the market for their own desire and benefit but if you want olive oil truly good olive oil there is a process meaning there is a custom and in regards to olive oil there is a pressing a part of the custom and a part of the process to get good olive oil, there is a pressing. Mark 14, 32, look at it with me. It says, Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. Verse 35 of Mark 14. He went a little further and fell on the ground. And he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. A couple points up front about what we just read. Moving forward does not always feel pleasing. Here is Jesus moving forward in the will of the Father and it didn't feel pleasing. What is best does not always feel best. The way forward does not always look like the way forward. This is why on the road to Easter, on the road to resurrection, we must never miss the wisdom demonstrated and communicated through the road through Gethsemane. The road through Gethsemane reminds us That when it comes to God's plan for you and I and when it comes to move forward in God's will and plan, there are Gethsemane's, meaning there are moments where there is an oil press, there is moments where what is pleasing to the Father doesn't feel pleasing to you and I's soul. That the way forward doesn't always look like the way forward. That what is best does not always feel best in John 18 and verse 4 as John re- gives the account of when Judas and those with him came to arrest Jesus it says in John eighteen four, Jesus therefore knowing all things that would come upon him went forward and said to them whom are you seeking notice Jesus went forward He went forward. And here, he didn't run, retreat. He went forward. And yet in that moment, he went forward in presenting himself to those who came to him to treat him like a robber with clubs and swords to arrest him. And he just went forward, meaning moving forward does not always feel monumental. In that moment, He just went forward. Some of you think that the only time God is working in your life is when things feel monumental. But Jesus was still going forward, but it didn't look monumental. So customs create a current in our life. We all face the possibility of having biases in our life. But we can learn from Jesus to allow prayer, to allow scripture, to allow God's work among God's people and practical discipleship to inform and evaluate the customs in our life and to expose any potential biases we might have in our life. So there's customs. Everybody say customs. Now let me talk about a cup. And Luke 22 and 41 says, and he, Jesus, was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. You know, as a baseball player, I wonder uh, how far that was because in baseball, everybody can throw a baseball a little further or, you know, than others or some further than others. I, I wonder how far is a stone's throw, you know? Is it like a six-year-old stone throw, you know? Or, or is it a single A, you know, throw? Or, or are we talking about a major league? Outfielder thrown away. I don't know. But I just think about how far was he. But it says about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup. Everybody say cup. Away from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Now when you look up the Greek word for cup and the Greek dictionary, it tells you that this word and cup is used as a metaphor. A metaphor in Scripture. A metaphor representing one's lot or experience. Watch this. Whether joyous or adverse, divine appointments, whether favorable or unfavorable, are likened to a cup which God presents one to drink. Whether of prosperity, or adversity. Here we see that in the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Garden of the Oil Press, the Father's wheel is pressing upon the Son's wheel. The Father's wheel is pressing upon the wheel of Jesus. And this wheel that is pressing of the Father's upon Jesus is not one of joyous occasion. It's not one of prosperity, it's one of adversity. And here Jesus is experiencing a moment, a cup, a time where what the Father is asking of Him is not favorable for Him emotionally. It's not favorable for him occasionally in the moment. He knows that he is facing physical pain. He's facing rejection and blasphemies. He's facing the failure of those closest to him in his time of need. He's facing what he's never faced before, A sense and an experience of being separated from the Father's presence. He's facing what He never faced before. An experience and a feeling of shame and guilt and sinfulness and uncleanness. As the Holy One, the holy spotless Lamb and Son of God, taking what you and I are, Sinful and unholy and selfish and broken. Jesus shows us that we can know what the will of the Father is and yet still not have our soul yet in a place that says amen to it. So you remember last time I was in the pulpit a couple weeks ago, we talked about that knowing God's will is important but it's not enough. And here we see a, a different layer, a different depth to that reality. Jesus knew what the, the will of the Father is. How do we know that? Watch this. Because in John 12 and 27, Jesus says, Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? I didn't give on this one. Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose, watch this, I came to this hour. Jesus knows what the will of the Father is. He knows that He came for this hour, that He came ultimately to give His life for our sin, to reconcile and to become the way for you and I back to our Creator. And yet, even knowing this is God's will, His soul is still deeply troubled, deeply distressed. Why? Because He still needed to get His soul pressed where then he could experience what he knew was God's will for him. You can know what's God's will for you, and yet your soul not be pressed yet to be in agreement with what you know is God's will for you. And here Jesus is showing as a human who took on what it is in human likeness that you and I experience, he is demonstrating the reality that he knows what we experience. That you and I can know it's God's will and yet still be struggling in our emotions and in our soul and agonizing and being distressed in what we then have to experience of God's will. See, when the will of God is not favorable, it creates conflict. You think about Jesus' life up to this point. He lived in complete obedience to the Father up to this point. But a lot of the things the Father had for Him to do up to this point was favorable. I don't know about you, but casting out demons I find favorable because I hate the devil who steals, kills, and destroys people's lives. I don't know about you, but laying hands on the sick and seeing them healed, I find favorable because I hate what sin and the effects of sin and Satan and demons does upon people's bodies. Feeding multitudes, I find favorable. Jesus, of course, He has obeyed the Father completely up to this point, But it's a lot of joyous divine appointments. I find the woman at the well, divine appointment and encounter, I find that favorable. I find it intriguing. I find it brilliant that the Father orchestrated that. But in this moment, it's still a divine appointment, He's still in the Father's will. But Gethsemane brings us to the awareness that there are things in the Father's will. It's still a divine appointment and a divine moment, but it doesn't mean it has to always be joyous for our soul. Joyous in our experience. That there is a cup and cups the Father will present to you and I that are hard to swallow in our humanity. In the humanity of our life and the self preserving aspect of our nature. See, when the will of God's not favorable to you, it creates conflict. Any parents know what I'm talking about? You got a kid with a cold, and you say, hey, take this little shot of cough medicine this little cup of cough medicine. And they're like, no, 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 please. And you say, well, wait a minute. Do you want to feel and actually get better? Yes, mommy. Yes, daddy. Then drink the cup. No, no, I can't drink the cup. Can you relate? Though we have bigger bodies now and we have a greater age number, to our age, and yet the father says, do you want what I have for you? Yes, yes, papi, yes, yes, daddy, yes, Abba. Then he says, drink this cup. No, 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 I can't drink that cup. See, we are vulnerable to only want the divine appointments and the divine moments of God that are emotionally joyous and seem prosperous. But the way to resurrection always has to still go through Gethsemane. There are cups the Father presents for us to drink that is not favorable to our taste, Favorable to the stories we've been telling ourselves, favorable to stories that culture would try to tell us, and yet it's the cup of the Father. See, listen, you know the difference between these two cups? At least one of the major ones? Is you can see what's in this cup because it's clear. You can't see what's in this red Solo cup. Now, all disclosure, I do own some stock in Solo, so i give you just some disclosures to those watching. You and I are vulnerable to always want our cup because we can be in control and determine what we allow and put in the cup. But the Father's cup is a cup of trust. And we can't see all that the Father puts in that cup. And so this is why the way forward is always a way of faith. Of, well, Father, it doesn't feel like it's going to make me better. This doesn't feel like it's the way forward. Because seeing the Father's cup, we can't see all that's in there. But when we want to stay in control of what we drink, of what we experience, we can see and determine. And the thing about that the cup creates conflict when it's not favorable to our emotions or to our mind or the story we tell ourselves or the story we've been told the story we've come to believe or expect, is that conflict doesn't just go away. Meaning, this conflict of Gethsemane, this conflict of the oil pressing, this conflict of the Father God's will being pressed upon your wheel, doesn't go away, it must be addressed. And without it being addressed, there's no chance of it being resolved. And the good news of through Gethsemane is Jesus faced the cup and he has grace for you and I to face the cup of the Father. Now, I want to ask you this question before we move on. What will be pressed into the cup of the experience in life that you'll drink? You can either choose to press into the cup of what you'll drink and experience in life. Your own ingredients and what you put into it. Or you can allow the experience that you drink to be the Father's cup and the Father's will. And this is what Jesus is demonstrating. Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Will you press into the cup of your experience in life the effects of your own will, your own choices, your own fruit, and the direction of your choosing? Or will you have in your cup what God has pressed and purposed for you? An experience and drink the fruit of God's will, God's preferable choices for you and directions for your life. Jesus in this moment had customs that helped him in the process of becoming willing to drink the Father's cup. This is why When it comes to the cup of the Father, when it comes to things that the Father has for you that doesn't seem advantageous to your emotions, to your liking, to the story you tell yourself. This is why if you don't already have habits of gathering and growing and grouping and places of prayer and practical discipleship, that process will be prolonged and more difficult this is why we constantly in love put before you what you can call the ABCs or the elementary teachings of Christianity of how to relate to the, the Messiah, Jesus the King in prayer, and changing the mind, engaging scriptures, a modeling community because they help you for these divine appointments and moments where it's still the Father's will and you're in the Father's will but to your taste up to this point in life it seems like a bitter peel a bitter drink because it doesn't seem favorable to the liking of your soul or your flesh so there's customs there is the issue of a cup now let's talk about that conflict that we face and presented with in Luke 22 and verse 44 the text says and Being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. It's interesting because that phrase being in agony, the Greek word, the root for the word agony is agon. And it's the word of the assembling of the Greeks, the assembling of the people for the Greek games. That word is the word used for when all the people would get together for what we now call the Olympic Games. Now I don't know about you, but when I think about the Olympics, I don't get the picture of like a lazy river. Like at a resort, just on a, you know, tube, and the river's just you know pushing you forward no 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 this is a picture of having to wrestle for victory this is a picture of of having to engage and and be intentional and wrestle and work for and demonstrate effort and then Jesus says watch and pray Least you enter into temptation. Watch this. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. See, the wrestling of our willingness to drink the Father's cup instead of always trying to create our own cup and the experience in life that we want or we think we want because of the wrong stories we tell ourselves or is a conflict between our spirit and our flesh the eternal and the temporary and notice jesus tells them without watching see watching is something you do intentional i watched a little bit of the masters yesterday just to honor my friend who's a golfer pastor craig and some others in my life and and uh Did you believe it or not that that didn't just happen passively? I actually, in order to watch the masters, had to intentionally choose to watch the masters, I had to use my eyes and focus. Jesus says, watch and pray. What's He saying? You're going to have to wrestle. You're going to have to agonize. You're going to have to be intentional. You're going to have to make effort. You're going to have to get some customs. You're going to have to wrestle and get some habits so that you continue to pray. Why? Because there's a conflict between the spirit aspect of your being and the flesh aspect of your being. And those two aspects of your being are pressing upon your soul, your will, the story you tell yourself, the story you believe. Paul talks about this in Galatians 5 and Romans 8. This is what I think about Newton's law of motion. Newton's law of motion says when you accelerate in one direction, you feel the pull in the other direction. So for instance, if... if uh, you're driving with someone in here, or let's say you're riding in someone's car. I don't know who's a good driver versus a bad in here, but, but if you're in the passenger seat and they slam on the brakes too fast, right, that forward motion, and then they slam on the brakes, guess what your head does? It snaps back. Because when you accelerate in one direction, you feel the pull in the other direction. The first law of Newton is an object will not change its motion unless a force acts on it. When you have purposed in your heart to move forward in the Father's will, you need to understand there is going to be opposition. And not just opposition of the devil, there's going to be opposition of your flesh. That's why you're going to have to understand the language of Scripture and the way of Gethsemane. You're going to have to wrestle it out. And you're going to have to wrestle it out in prayer. And you say, well, I went and prayed. Listen, Jesus didn't pray once. You go read it. He went back and He prayed again. And Scripture says He prayed the same words again. Why? Because the way through Gethsemane is about you pray and you engage in the customs that Jesus engaged in until you get to the place where your soul is at peace with the Father's cup and you're ready to drink it until your soul says amen, until His will becomes okay in your will. You keep going back to prayer and you keep praying, Lord, not my will, but Your will be done. You keep praying, Lord, help me and you're going to have to sweat it out. And here we see Jesus, He's sweating life. So, what do you mean? Well, let me read it again. Luke 22, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. Here's Jesus sweating life because watch this. Genesis 9, 4 says, But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Blood and life are synonymous in Scripture. Life is in the blood. What it's saying is, is here is Jesus sweating about life. Why? Because He knows He came to die. And His soul is in anguish that He's going to have to drink the Father's cup. A cup that's not pleasing to the life of His soul. Because it's going to be the death of His soul. But so that He can overcome all evil. And for some of you, the Father's cup right now for you to drink is understanding that in the dying of your will becomes actually the experience of freedom in the Father's will. Before you can rest in God's will, you will have to sweat about it. If you are not concerned about God's will for you, you will never concern yourself with the pressing necessary to experience it. Because why? When you accelerate in one direction, you're going to feel the pull in the opposite direction. So if you're not concerned and you're not sweating about life and sweating about your identity and sweating about God's purpose for your life, that when you feel that opposite pull... If you're not concerned about the major issues of life, you'll give up. You won't wrestle it out. You won't keep going back to the place of prayer. You won't then begin to pray earnestly. You won't stay there until you're ready to drink the Father's cup. Maybe you heard the saying, don't sweat the small stuff. Well, today I want to tell you to sweat about the large stuff. See, what Jesus was sweating about was not the small stuff. He's sweating about life. He's sweating about redemption. He's sweating about the Father's will. The issue with religion, what Jesus rebuked, is that they sweated but they sweated about the wrong things. They were sweating about gnats and sweating about dirt, getting into you know, the things they were tithing and, and, and all of that, the small things. And he said, but you're swallowing camels. You're not sweating about mercy and sweating about faith and sweating about kingdom fruitfulness. You're sweating about small things. I want to be a church that sweats, but we don't sweat about small things. We sweat about major things. Life and death, spirit and flesh, temporal eternity. Sweat about issues like God's purpose. What's God's identity? What's God's gifted? What does God have for us? That we sweat about the major things of life, not the minor things of life. See, major things of life, why do you exist? Caleb, if you're coming to the Keys or someone else, you can come. What's your purpose? What does God require of you? Who is Jesus? What did He teach? What did He claim about Himself? Where do you find your identity? Where do you find your purpose? Where do you find your significance? I want you to sweat about that stuff. See, listen, if you're not sweating, you're not wrestling. And if you're not wrestling, you're in the wrong current. You're in the lazy river. You're in the complacent river. And the amazing thing about Scripture says it's not just the enemy and wickedness that destroys people and damns people. Did you know Scripture and the prophets warn complacency damns people? Complacency. I want... People in America and the nations of the world to start sweating about major issues of life. Because you're going to stand before your Creator. You're going to have to deal with the reality of eternity. Life and death. Righteousness and unrighteousness. See, resigned people don't sweat when you have someone who has resigned and left where you work they don't sweat at all about what's happening at that work that place resigned people don't sweat but people who are wrestling sweat and notice Jesus's sweat fell to the ground like blood and then the story says when Judas brings those group of people to arrest them they ask you he says I am and the text says in Luke 18 4 and 6 I'm going to read it for you well it's not Luke 18 but I'll read it once I find it that they all stumbled and fell to the ground you know what hit me? when you are not founded on God's life you're destined to fall his sweat just fell to the ground like blood now those who arrive to arrest him fall to the ground you know why they fell to the ground? because their life wasn't founded upon his life and that's why scripture says that his blood Christ becomes a stumbling block for people They stumbled over his sweat that was like blood on the ground. Why? Because they were telling themselves the wrong story. They were listening to the wrong story. Because when you're not founded on God's life, you're destined to fall. I want to tell some people today, don't stumble on the sweat. Don't stumble on the sweat that when it comes to being secure in your identity in Christ come on man, when it comes to you knowing your purpose in God when it comes to you waging the good warfare and running after the things that God has prophesied about you and what God has determined about you don't stumble on the sweat you need to understand that when you purpose to move forward in God there's going to be a pulling in the other direction and yes sometimes it's the devil but sometimes it's our own flesh it's sometimes the old lies lying stories that we have told ourselves to make ourselves feel better see that's what bias does if you believe the wrong story about yourself you'll do everything you can to reject disassociate and remove yourself from a story that conflicts with the lying story you tell yourself but we're going to be a church God keeps confronting the wrong stories we tell ourselves. Where God continues to confront the wrong stories culture tries to tell us. And we're not going to stumble on the sweat of prayer and stumble on the sweat of the customs to keep wrestling out getting to the place that when the Father has a cup for us that doesn't seem advantageous, that doesn't seem emotionally delightful, That doesn't seem beneficial and joyful. That doesn't seem like the way forward. We wrestle. We sweat it out until we get to the place. Of nevertheless. Not my will. Not my control. Not my cup that I can dictate. But your cup and will, Father, be done. Because listen, Jesus is not just Savior. He's the ground that your life can be founded on. Jesus is not just Savior. He is also your way forward. Thank you so much for listening to this week's message. If you would like more information about our church, be sure to visit us on the web at dwellingplacemovement.org.